Fantastic. I just thought uh, I would tell you all that I joined the gym on Friday. Yeah, I did. And as I joined the gym, I saw my man Wayne. He was leaving the gym. And listen, this is amazing. He told me that at the gym I joined, there's six people from our church at that gym. And as he was leading, he turned around to the trainers and he said, and you two better come to the church. We're just down the road. And I love that. I thought, yes, this is our people. We're an invitational people. How good is that? And so we're believing in Jesus' name for the two trainers on Sykes Road to come to church. <laughs> oh, so good. But it's great to be with you this morning. I'm going to pray and then I'm going to get into the Word of God. Lord, we thank you for your Word. It's living. It's active. It has the power to change us. Lord, we don't stand as judge or critics on your word right now in the name of Jesus. We humble our hearts and we place ourselves beneath the authority of your word and we say, change us, shape us, transform us to your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. We've been in our series on the 10 commandments. Uh, They are found in Exodus chapter 20. And the 10 commandments are what God gives the nation of Israel when he's rescued them out of slavery in Egypt. You need to understand that for, for 300 years, all Israel have known is the whips of these slave masters. And so God brings them to Sinai and he gives them the law. He gives them the Ten Commandments. And these things will be the foundation of their nation. He's teaching a slave people how to be a free people, a slave people how to be a holy people, a distinct people, a special people, because we serve a holy, distinct, and special God. But more than that, I want to talk about how the law of which the Ten Commandments is one is part of is applicable to us as believers today. Galatians 3.24 says that the law is our tutor, which brings us to the feet of Jesus. It brings us to the feet of Christ that we might be justified by faith. See, this verse tells us exactly how the law applies to you and me. The law is our tutor. It's our teacher. It teaches us some things. It teaches us things about God, but it also teaches us some things about us. And the purpose of that teaching is that it would bring us to the feet of Christ. This is vitally important for understanding the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments is not meant to take you to the feet of self-condemnation. It's not meant to take you to the feet of shame. It's not meant to take you to the feet of self-pity. It's meant to tutor you, to teach you all the way to the feet of Jesus. Now, this is important because I don't know about you, but this series has left me feeling a little bit exposed. Like I've left church most Sunday feeling, my goodness, I kind of feel like I feel when I catch sight of myself in a bathroom with fluorescent lighting, you know? <laughs> you know? Do I really look like that? Is that what I really look like? Is that what's really in my heart? Is that really the reality of who I am? See, the thing is, is that the Lord, yes, friends, it does expose us. Yes, it does reveal the reality of our hearts, but it does so to get you to the feet of Jesus. Let me say this. If in this series you find yourself stopping at the feet of shame or at the feet of condemnation or at the feet of self-pity, you have stopped too soon. You have stopped way too soon. You need to let the law, the Ten Commandments, teach and tutor you all the way to the feet of Jesus. See, the thing you need to understand about the Bible is the Bible isn't like that colleague you work with who points out all the problems but never provides the solutions. It's not like that auntie you have who's real, real good at finding all the critique but never gives you any 
No, no, no. The Bible confidently reveals our failure because it's telling us the story of our solution. The Bible confidently points out our sin because it points us to the one who wore it. The Bible confidently tells the story of where we fall short because it's also telling the story of our redemption and our Savior. And so, friend, if you're stopping in the place of shame, you're stopping way too soon because the Bible is telling the story of how your failure ultimately ends in freedom in Christ. That is what the gospel is all about. That is why it's called good news. And so, friend, if in this place over the series you feel exposed, all good, don't stop there. Let it take you, tutor you, teach you all the way to the feet of Jesus. And with that in mind, let's turn to our sixth commandment, Exodus 20, 13, you shall not murder. You shall not murder. The word murder is the Hebrew word rasak, which means to murder, to slay, or to kill. If you're old school and you still read the King James or power to you, it actually translates this verse, uh, thou shalt not kill. And the implication of this verse is quite simple. Human beings are commanded to not take the lives of other human beings. What God is doing in this verse is he is addressing the sanctity of life, the value of life. And he's telling us that we are not meant to take life away. And in fact, in his earthly ministry, Jesus speaks directly to this commandment. And he uses a formula that you'll sometimes find in his time on earth where he says this. He says, you have heard it said, but now I say to you. You need to understand that when Jesus is saying that, he's not changing the law. What he's meaning is this. You have understood this commandment this way, but in fact, this is how it should really be interpreted. This is how it should really be understood. And when Jesus speaks to this commandment, that's when it gets all up in our business. Let's read it together in Matthew 5, 21 to 22. You've heard it said that, you've heard, excuse me, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court, and anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fires of hell. Friends, we might not all be murderers, but we have definitely all at some times been haters, you know, and this is when this passage gets all the way up in our business. We've all been guilty of storing up anger in our hearts to our brothers and sisters, now let's get some context here. In Jesus' time, that word raka meant empty-headed or fool, but in a harsh, contemptuous way, it could also mean, I wish you were never born, or better, that you were dead. And actually, Jesus is speaking directly into the hearts of men who at the time were so angry with Jesus that they would still condemn Jesus to death. And these religious leaders weren't the ones who were guilty of hammering the nails in his hands, but Jesus is understanding a greater truth, that it is their anger that in fact condemns him to death. Because anger, friend, is the genesis point. It's the beginning of murder. But again, Jesus is addressing here the sanctity of life. At the core of his words is the value for life. Every time I get angry with someone, I am unleashing my anger on another human who is created by God, and that is too 
God, so should therefore matter to me. Now this reveals to us a kind of significant underlying principle of the Ten Commandments, particularly the do not Ten Commandments. There's a bunch of commandments in the Ten Commandments that we've been going through that actually address the negative. They say, do not do this. And you need to understand that those commandments function like the end of the road. They function like a fence. They function like a boundary saying, this is where you stop and you go no further. Now imagine you're driving and you come to a sign that says the road ends here, go no further. In life, what do you do when you reach a sign like that? You stop, come on, you turn around and you go in the other direction. This is what you've got to understand about the do not commandments. They are meant to stop you, turn you around and send you in the other direction. Do not covet is meant to stop you, turn you around and send you into contentment. Do not steal is meant to stop you, turn you around and send you into generosity. Do not lie is meant to stop you, turn you around and send you into truth. And do not murder is meant to stop you, turn you around and send you into life. This is the reality of the do not commandments. See, this is what the do not command, do not murder command is all about. It's about the reality that life is utterly precious. Life is utterly sacred. Life is utterly valuable. And as God's people, we acknowledge that all life comes from God. And as such, it's our mandate to choose life. See, we see all these things outworked in the first mention of murder that we actually have in the Bible. And fascinatingly, it's the first story after the fall of man. You find it in Genesis 4, and it involves two brothers, Cain and Abel. You need to understand that in Bible reading, there's something called the first mention principle. And the idea is that the first time a word, a concept is mentioned, it sets the tone for all the rest of the usages in Scripture. And so if you're wanting to find out a bit about a concept, to find out about love or sacrifice, a real good starting place is to go to the text where that word is first mentioned. So this is where the word is first mentioned. It says this, Genesis 4 verse 1 to 8, Adam made love to his wife Eve and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, check this, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept the flocks and Cain worked the soil. And in the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Remember, Jesus says that anger is the genesis for murder. There it is in the first mention. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? He's giving him an opportunity to repent. If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. But Cain doesn't listen. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. It's the first mention of murder in the Bible. Here are a couple of things to note from the text. Firstly, the text begins with affirming that life comes from God. 
it very intentionally says that Eve, with the help of the Lord, brought forth a son. What it's doing in the story of the first murder is affirming that God is the only one who gives life, and so therefore God is the only one who can take it away. You know, I recently heard a story, a group of scientists challenged God saying, let's start with a pile of dirt and we'll show you how we can create a human to which God says, that's fine, but you have to make your own dirt. (laughs) Yeah, this is good. You know, as humans, we have made all sorts of advances when it comes to genetic manipulation and, and research. You know, our, our amazing Whangarei pastors have an incredible story about uh, IVF and the part it played in conceiving some of their children. And, but the reality is that it is still God who is our creator. He is still the one who brings it all to, to life. And right from the jump in this passage of the story where the first time human ever took the life of another human, it affirms that life comes from God. And so only God has the authority to take it away. That's the first thing you can see in the text. The second thing I wanted to point out is that Cain's anger comes from him being in the wrong. This is where it gets real convicting. Cain's anger comes from him being in the wrong. Cain's sacrifice, for whatever reason, is judged by God as unfitting. Very interestingly, the text isn't into giving reasons as to why his offering is unfitting. We don't know if it was the offering itself or if it was the condition of Cain's heart. All we know is that God judges the offering not as good as the one that Abel brings. The text is actually far more interested in Cain's response to being in the wrong than it is on why Cain is in the wrong in the first place. And Cain's response is anger. Now, this reveals to us a key point about anger. Anger involves right and wrong. We get angry when we have been wronged, you know, when we're cut off in traffic, when someone lies on us, when someone steals from us. We get angry when we've been wronged, but also sometimes we get angry when we're judged for being wrong. And I think this is where it gets a little bit convicting because all of us have been in the situation where someone comes and points out wrong in our lives and we hit the roof. We blow up. We start shooting our best shots. We know that the best defense is always a good offense. And so we go off even when deep down we know that maybe they were right, you know. It's what we do, right? Because anger involves right or wrong. Isn't it interesting that the first murder ever was motivated by actually the one who was in the wrong? That gets convicting, doesn't it? Because anger involves right or wrong. And The reality is this is what makes this commandment so universally applicable. Because the reality is in this room, we've all been wronged before and we've all been in the wrong and got defensive before. And so this feeling of anger applies to all of it, all of us, no matter how happy we appear on the outside, whether we're the blow up person or the bottle up person, you know, anger applies to all of us. And so all of us need some ways of dealing with the anger in our hearts. So I'm going to give some points this morning. If For us to deal with the anger in our hearts, the first point is this. If you're dealing with anger, we look in the mirror. We look in the mirror. You know, I know this isn't the first point that any of us want to hear. 
When we're angry, the last thing that we want to do is do some soul searching. The last thing we want to do is take a look in our hearts and ask ourselves where we're responsible or where we need to grow. But the reality is, when we get angry, the first place that we need to start is us. And if anything, Cain and the story of Cain gives us a biblical mandate for that. Because Cain was angry because he was in the wrong. And so perhaps it offers us a suggestion that before we go holding up the mirror to everyone else, that we should instead turn the mirror and look at ourselves first and ask ourselves, where do I need to grow? Hear me, because anger involves right and wrong, it always involves judgment right? If I am angry, it's because I have judged myself in the right and I have judged you in the wrong. Let's remember for a second what Jesus says about judgment. Do not judge, Matthew 7, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why, he says, do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your... Am I enjoying this too much? I am, aren't I? I just, yeah, I should just... You know, wow. Thank you. Sorry, everyone. <laughs> I don't know what's happening. I just... Wow. How can you <laughs> say to your brother... Let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye. You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brothers. When dealing with anger in your heart, the first place that we need to look is the mirror and ask ourselves, is there anything in me that needs to grow? Second thing we need to do is we need to get off the judgment seat. We need to get off the judgment seat. See, this point uh, leads directly on from the first point. Anger always involves judgment. And so in order to deal with our anger, we need to take ourselves off the seat of judgment. See, imagine for a second that I came into church one day with a mirror and I went around from person to person holding it up to them and revealing their flaws. You know, your outfit's weird, your haircut's funny today. Sorry, I try not to make eye contact as I'm saying this because I don't want anyone to like think that I'm making any suggestions, you know, but if I was to do this, you'd be like, well, Haley's weird. What happened? Haley's rude. What happened to her this morning? Don said, ha, too many times. You might be right, you know. <laughs> Walking around, you, you'd say that I was rude, right? But the reality is that we do this behind people's back all the time. We hold up the mirror to their lives and we judge them on their behavior, on their outfits. Goodness, sometimes we judge people on how their children are behaving. We don't say it to their face, we say it behind their back, it's, unless we're on social media, and then sometimes we do say it to their face, you know? But the reality is, friend, we need to ask ourselves, what qualifies us to be good judges? Do we have perfect knowledge? Do we have all the facts about that person and their situation? Do we have perfect understanding? Do we know what motivates them? Do we know what forces have formed them? Do we have perfect wisdom? Do we know how to apply that knowledge? Because actually, the last time I checked, the only person with perfect knowledge, perfect understanding, and perfect wisdom is the just judge himself. And that's why he's the one who sits on the judgment seat. Friend, if we're going to get over our anger, we need to get off the seat of judgment because we are simply not qualified. We are simply not qualified. There is only one who is the just judge, the King of kings, the Lord of 
truly wronged. You have been truly wronged by another. And if that's you, you have my deepest sympathy and deepest compassion, but please hear my heart. Even if you have been truly wronged, that does not give you the excuse to sit on the seat of judgment. In fact, God is explicit about this in Romans 12. He says, repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, it says, do not avenge yourselves. Hear the care in Paul's voice that he picks the used word beloved to make that statement. He's saying, beloved, I have love for you. I have regard for you. And out of the depths of my compassion, I am asking for your best. Do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. See, even if you have been truly wronged, we have the assurance that we serve a just God. His scales are evenly weighted. And so we can cast our cares on him and get off the judgment seat. The last point today is if we're dealing with anger, we choose life. We choose life. I'm going to ask the team to join me. Hear me today. If you make your home in your anger, you are making your home in that which ultimately leads to death. That's what this text is saying. That anger stored up, undealt with in your heart, ultimately leads to death and decay. And friend, we know this because healthcare science proves it. There are a host of medical conditions that are linked to prolonged and chronic anger. Headaches, skin disorders, problems with indigestion, blood pressure. Chronic anger increases your risk of having a stroke. It lowers your immunity. Actually, they find that those with chronic anger are twice as likely to have a heart attack as those who don't. Why? Because Scripture's true. (laughs) And science is finally catching up to the revelation that it carries, right? Scripture is true. Jesus said all the way back when that anger stored up in your heart at your brother will lead to death and decay. And so I'm asking you as the people of God to not choose death, but choose life. See, we're not created as the people of God to spend our lives staring at the end of the road. We're not meant to continue in our anger, even if we know that it won't be physically outworked in murder. No, we're created for so much more than that. Remember that the presence of these do not commandments are meant to stop us, turn us around and send us into God's best. The presence of this commandment was meant to stop us, turn us around and send us running towards life extravagant life, abundant life, eternal life, more than enough life, free and light life, the type of life that, friend, Jesus hung on a cross and died to give you. And so I'm asking you today not to hold on to that which is only going to lead you to death and decay, but to turn around and run to that which Jesus died to give you. John 10 10 is clear. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but Jesus has come that we might have life and we might 
If you are storing up in your heart anger towards your brother, you are abiding in the enemy's plan for your life. It's not God who wants you to abide in a place of decay and death and destruction. Friend, he died for far more than that. And so today I'm saying that if you're in this place and for a prolonged period of time, you have been harboring anger in your heart towards your brother, I am saying as your friend, as your sister in Christ, it is time to get out of agreement with what the enemy has planned for your life and get into agreement with what Christ died to give you. And it's as simple as this, let go of anger and run towards life. Let go of anger and run towards life. Run towards life abundant. Run towards life eternal. Run towards the more than enough life that, friend, is what God has authored to you. But it stands at the end of you saying, I'm not going to hold on to death no more. I'm running towards life. 